Hey Compact Nation podcast fans, this is Emily Shields and I have a special request for you. We are busy preparing for season three. Can you believe it? And we would like to know what you think. So if you could fill out our official podcast survey, we would really appreciate it. You can find the survey at compact.org slash pod survey. Complete it by the end of July, and we will use your comments to make our podcast even better. Tell us if you like the format. Tell us who you want to interview. Tell us which have been your favorite guests. Again, that's compact.org slash pod survey between now and the end of July. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I'm J.R. Jameson, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. And I'm Marisol Morales, Vice President for Network Leadership. So Marisol, we're excited to have you on today as a guest host in place of Emily on the podcast. And as you mentioned, you're our new Vice President for Network Leadership. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been up to? Sure. Um, Yes, I've been up to a lot in these last, um, I think it's coming up on six months that I've been with the Compact. Um, So my responsibilities uh, lie with um, supporting um, our Compacts across the country, um, the executive directors and staff, and being um, a direct um, support to them um, as we continue to build um, our network. And then also helping to lead the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which we really want to see integrated into both our um, internal uh, operations as well as the work that we do with our member institutions and through our compacts. So really excited to be here. I've been working very closely with um, different uh, state and regional compacts, um, getting to know our members, and really um, seeing the power that this network has in moving the work of community engagement uh, forward. We're really excited to have you. What's the most interesting thing that you've learned so far about the compact world? Hmm. Not to put you on the spot. (laughs) Yeah, I would just say how um, diverse each state is in terms of the way that it's set up, the kinds of institutions that it has, um, but also like this cohesiveness that we have in terms of the commitment to um, the work of university community partnerships uh, that are th- are authentic, uh, deep, and um, transformational. Mm-hmm. And speaking of states and regions, Andrew, you've been out and about and busy lately. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing in Compact Nation? Sure. Uh, I have stayed a little bit closer to home than I sometimes do. I've been to two New England colleges uh, in the last couple of weeks. I was at Merrimack College, which is in in Massachusetts, up near the New Hampshire border, Uh maybe last week, I get a little confused as to where I am when, at a conference they were doing that was uh, focused on internal folks and as well as folks from some other regional institutions. And I I gave a a keynote talk there, but also had the opportunity to sit in on sessions, a, a faculty panel and a community partner panel and other discussions. And you know, it was interesting because a lot of the t- discussions were very practical and really thinking about 
how do we take broad commitments we have and goals uh, to principles like equity and diversity and building just and equitable communities and put those into practice at the very nuts and bolts level in the ways that we enact partnerships, build relationships, support curriculum development and pedagogy. So that was very interesting to me. Um, and just, uh, you know, I like to get regrounded in those kinds of things that I've spent a lot of my life thinking about, but that also are not always my day-to-day work now. And then just yesterday, this one's easier to remember when it happened, uh, I was up at Middlebury College for an event with our members in Vermont, really talking about how we're going to remain connected and uh, working together into the future But it was a terrific opportunity to learn, again, a lot about some of the really exciting work happening in Vermont. There's a new partnership involving Middlebury and the University of Vermont uh, focused on teaching and learning connected to privilege and poverty is how they frame it. And, you know, that was just an interesting commitment for them to have made and two very different types of institutions, a large public and a small private liberal arts institution working together. So... You know, I, I've, uh, yeah, just then heard lots of other interesting things as well, but it, it was uh, a good couple of opportunities for me. Perfect. And you have a piece you've been working on or that's coming out soon in the Metropolitan University's journal, right? That is true. So I had the opportunity last fall to speak at the 2017 Kumu Annual Conference and uh, Bobby Lauer, who is the terrific executive director of Kumu, organized a plenary session that involved three talks in sequence, one by Barbara Holland, one by Ted Howard, uh, who leads the Democracy Collaborative, more about that a little later in this show, um, and then one by me about kind of interlocking issues related to anchor institutions and higher education engagement. And... So they've then just published uh, the talks in uh, its volume 29, number two of the urban of the uh, Metropolitan University's journal. And, and they, the title of the piece is Voices from the Field. And it's these three talks published in sequence. Um, so you can Google it. It's free online. Um, and I'll talk maybe a little bit later as we get into this dialogue about anchor institutions about some of what I talked about in that piece. But yes, I was excited that that has gone live and and people can take a look at it. And I'd love to hear people's feedback. Perfect. That's a good segue into the interview we did this month. I was over the moon to sit down with two women to have a conversation with them about anchor institution work. One who I run into at conferences all the time and we get opportunities to have small talk, but really hadn't had an opportunity to sit down. And the other individual uh, I have been dying to meet for some time. And those two individuals are Dr. Valerie Holton, who is a higher education consultant um, and also a senior Fulbright scholar at National Taiwan University. And she currently serves as a senior fellow with the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities, or affects affectionately known as KUMU. And the other woman was Emily Sladek, who is the manager of higher education engagement at the Democracy Collaborative. The the Democracy Collaborative and KUMU have come together uh, around the Anchor Mission Initiative in partnership with 31 colleges and universities across the country. And we had an opportunity to chat about that. Let's go to that interview now. 
Valerie Holton and Emily Sladek. Welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. We're excited to be here. So, Valerie, you're coming to us from Taiwan, and Emily, you're coming to us from D.C., so our listeners are really getting an international experience (laughs) as we're having this conversation, which is pretty exciting. And I can tell you all about what the future holds, because we're 12 hours ahead. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, Yeah. you're welcome. (laughs) So, for our U.S. listeners, what's it like already heading into the long three-day holiday weekend? Well, we do not celebrate Memorial Day here in Taiwan that I'm aware of anyway, so Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a three-day holiday weekend. Yeah. I was just thinking for our U.S. listeners, if you could talk a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's amazing for it to be Friday night and not having to have all of Friday ahead of me before the weekend. So that part you should feel very envious of. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to the weekend, I will say. I want to start off talking about the Anchor 101 framework and how it relates to the mission of higher education. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, urban and metropolitan universities really are called to this public mission that we teach our students and generate new knowledge and creative expression in a way that also benefits our communities. And so we really embrace our goals to include that we enhance our access to education, that we educate students in a way that provides real world experiences while also being a benefit to our community. Uh, We want to graduate engaged citizens and develop the workforce that we also embrace that our research should address real-world problems and opportunities. Uh, And so, and then of course also, I can't forget our creative expression should also educate, inspire, soothe at times, and generate critical dialogue. And these are only some of the ways that we can contribute to the health and well-being of our communities. And so anchor institutions, like institutions of higher education and healthcare systems and these other institutions and organizations that are place-bound have an opportunity and perhaps even a mandate to harness our vast economic decision-making and resources toward the benefit of our region. So this can include the way we hire, like developing hiring pipelines that will help support um, hiring people in lower resourced and low opportunity areas to be able to develop the job skills that both they need, uh, but that also we need for them to have uh, so that we could have these hiring pipelines that really help bring them into uh, really good quality employment. Uh, Whether we pay a livable wage to our employees, making sure that we're engaging in responsible real estate practices and purchasing locally, and when possible, even helping to create local purchasing opportunities. Uh, We have some great stories, and we've seen some really wonderful opportunities where where universities have created ways that really enhance the small business and medium business communities uh, around purchasing opportunities. And so basically, in essence, the size, the massive size of our institutions and the considerable resources that we have all can contribute to the kind of environment that helps us to attract and retain students and provide them with these really rich learning experiences and opportunities both inside and outside the classroom. Because what we know is that students are attracted to these vibrant communities. Uh, In addition, I think also it's worth noting that a really economically, socially, and creatively vibrant community also supports our research mission. 
and it helps support innovation and entrepreneurship. And all of this, I think, is really how what this anchor framework is and how it really contributes and supports our public missions. So if an institution is thinking about taking on an anchor role, what would a first step be for them to choose that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, there was a small group of universities who had that very question of how do we know what we're doing is really benefiting the community? And they developed a set of metrics known as the Anchor Dashboard um, back in 2015. These colleges were SUNY Buffalo State, Cleveland State University, Drexel University, Rutgers, Newark University, University of Missouri, St. Louis, and Virginia Commonwealth University. And so what they found just through having to collect these impact measures is how do you go about talking about the anchor mission at your campuses? And this is um, the highlights of what they found in their work is in the report called Higher Education Anchor Mission. And that's available on the Democracy Now, or sorry, the Democracy Collaborative website. Um, and so it really highlights how do you institutionalize this work at your campus and move it beyond just one person or one program and make it part of how the university does business, community engagement, and teaching and learning. So um, in, in that report, they uh, have five steps for getting started. For, so they really thought the first step was having leadership that support adoption of the anchor mission at the highest level. Um, second would be to think about putting the anchor mission into strategic plans. Many campuses have anchor aligned language already in their strategic plan, and this is just further bringing out those themes of hiring, purchasing, investing, um, and that can help um, align what you're already doing as an institution to just deepen that um, in a way that connects with your community partners and breaks down silos between departments. Also through collecting data, they found that they needed to uh, form committees. And so they started having people meet from across divisions. Um, for instance, your hiring, uh, uh, your HR director, your CFO, um, community engagement staff, and really having discussions for how do we move the needle forward here at our communities, in our communities and our, at our campuses. Um, and then also going back to what Valerie said about how do you define local? What are those kind of low resourced communities that your institution wants to really form a long-term partnership and mutual relationship with? And how and making sure that the projects you design and the data you can collect reflect back to that community. So um, all the campuses who were part of the original cohort uh, selected a community, a low-income community to also track data um, on and with. 
So the last point is to build relationships with external partners. So as part of having this dialogue on campus and collecting this data, you can start envisioning goals um, for what you want to work on as a campus and what you want to work on as a community. Um, so we'll get to this point later on, but one really exciting initiative that's taking place at the Rutgers University in New York and is around their 2020 program. And so all of the anchors in NERC have come together to, with one hiring goal um, to hire 2,020 people by the year 2020. And so right adopting an anchor mission has helped them come up with a place-based strategy for reducing poverty and, and increasing income in their community. Hmm, nice. I often hear from folks that are considering applying for the Carnegie Classification for Community Engagement that if you are doing anchor mission work, uh, then why would you go for Carnegie? But that seems really like a flawed concept for me. So can you talk a little bit about what ways do the Carnegie Classification for Community Engagement and the Higher Education Anchor Mission Initiative overlap? Are they mutually exclusive in any way? And in what ways can institutions leverage Carnegie and the Higher Education Anchor Mission Initiative processes to benefit the other? Uh, I'd love to answer that one. I think it's a great question. It's something that, you know, we're talking a lot in the field. And I think it's, it's at the risk of being a bit, uh, perhaps strongly stating this, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy that they would be separate. So if we think about our public mission and we think about what we're absolutely and actually trying to do in higher education around building healthy communities, communities and helping to educate an engaged citizenry and to develop the workforce and to have vibrant communities that our students want to come to and our faculty want to come to and we can do our really great work, then it's really all part of the same thing. And it's true that they may and do focus on different aspects because no one thing can focus on all the things, right? If that makes any sense. Uh, you have to be able to separate them out a little bit uh, so that you can really dig in deep. The Carnegie Community Engagement Classification was developed to really help us as a field to think about uh, what does it look like to be an engaged institution and to be able to support our students in this kind of engagement and the way that they learn and, and somewhat to think about the research in that perspective as well. And so the classification itself is really about how to how does it serve as a tool to really support the institutionalization of this approach to our teaching and learning uh, and somewhat to our research. And the anchor work is really helps to wrap in these uh, other aspects of our institution, as well as providing these learning and research opportunities for our students. I remember sitting in a committee meeting that uh, that I was chairing, and we had people from all these different aspects of the administrative side of the university, and we had a very serious-looking procurement director, and I wasn't sure how to read her and her interest in this initiative, and it was a new conversation for her, and afterwards, she stayed, and she was so excited that she felt like her work was now going to be part of this larger mission of the university that she had been really drawn to when she came for this position. And so I think that to me really spoke to the idea that 
there are so many people uh, within our institutions that want to be part of this larger mission and to be able to have all of the aspects of a university or a college uh, aim towards that, I think it all benefits the larger good. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you have to choose one or the other. So the, you know, certainly the community engagement classification is going to be an application that helps us to institutionalize our engagement and to re- sort of recognize those who have uh, obtained a certain level. And the higher education anchor mission and initiative is we're a little bit earlier in the field on how to institutionalize that work. And so we're starting to do that together through this initiative. Is there an example of an anchor institution that is held up as a model of best practices? I'm thinking especially institutions of varying size, missions, classifications. So, for example, not an R1. (laughs) But R1s are great. We don't have to, you know, leave them out. But Emily, I think you have lots of good examples that you can share. Yeah, yeah, so it's great. The Anchor Dashboard Learning Cohort, the the group of six universities who have been piloting these measures, have a lot going on uh, at their institutions around the Anchor Mission. For instance, all six of them have adapted uh, Anchor language in their strategic plans, and they all have the committees form uh, that I mentioned earlier, more specific programming that they're working on, um, I'll just run through really quickly. Um, So SUNY Buffalo State is um, really working in its small business development center uh, to support and incubate minority women in locally owned small business. And they're also teaching about employee ownership and, and worker cooperatives in that program. So that's a really great example of how Uh, your university small business centers can support women minority-owned businesses in a way that builds intergenerational wealth and equity and stronger relationships between the college and community. Um, The University of Missouri-St. Louis has really been working with students um, in a way that they can kind of vote um, for kind of what to fund in the community. So for example, uh, the Autometry School students voted for the school to fund the development of a primary care facility in a neighborhood with a dearth of physicians and medical facilities to provide low cost care. So going back to what Valerie mentioned earlier, that's a way that students have started to get involved in the anchor mission work as well. I did mention the case of Rutgers University at Newark earlier um, around collective goal setting. Um, And so I think that's a really good example for multi-anchor initiatives and how universities can start connecting with local government and hospitals um, to start thinking through what are are the collective goals we want to have for our community. At Cleveland State University, uh, they are in partnership with the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Uh, With land donated by Cleveland State, they built a state-of-the-art new facility with the only available, for the only available elementary school in the downtown area. The Campus International School is partnered with Cleveland State and provides high-quality public education for the area's 15,000 residents. So that's a great example of the university kind of pulling its land resources to increase educational access. 
in Drexel at Drexel University in Philadelphia. They have um, a great program around the West Philadelphia Skills Initiative. Uh, that's a community-based organization that works with local residents to develop uh, medical assistant training uh, to uh, create a pipeline of living wage jobs for residents, um, especially in their uh, healthcare center. So uh, that's an example of inclusive hiring pipeline. Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond also has a program around inclusive hiring. It's more geared towards uh, re residents who are re-entering uh, formerly incarcerated and, and or unhoused residents. So they uh, work with two community-based organizations in Richmond on an eight-month construction training program. Um, and so they're learning soft skills as part of that job, or soft skills as part of that training as well as, as construction training jobs. And they get a, uh, they get a CPR certified for free, OSHA uh, 10 certified, and then they also get a stipend as part of that training. So those are a few examples of what we're doing, but really great stuff happening around the country, and, and we hope to be doing that more in the future. Those are really excellent examples. Can you tell our listeners more about the Higher Education Anchor Mission Initiative? Yeah, sure. So, um, like I said, the group of six universities are is expanding to a group of 32, and we're going to be known as the Higher Education Anchor Mission Initiative. Uh, we've partnered with the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities as part of that work, and it's going to include public and private schools from all over North America. Um, so we have the goal of integrating all of our functions, including our business activities, to support underserved communities and advance equity and inclusion. This is not separate from what you are doing as a university now, but connected to the overall public-facing mission of the university. Students, staff, and faculty will begin to work together across the institution and identify common challenges with community partners, hoping to strengthen the public mission of higher education. So that's our overall goal. The activities that kind of uh, will be part of the initiative is we will meet twice a year. Our first uh, gathering is at VCU at the end of June. It's a two-day gathering. And uh, our next gathering will be right before the Kumu Conference in Chicago in October. Uh, so our working goals during that meeting will really to be to develop a common understanding of the anchor mission for higher education and how coming together as an action learning network can support uh, universities in advancing the anchor strategies um, at their institutions. And can well, I just add, I think... Yes. Ooh. I think part of what is so exciting about this is that we really are trying to uh, sort of take the expertise and the wisdom and pull all of that together so that we can really build out the field of knowledge and expertise and how to do this work and how to do it well. So, you know, we're just, this is the first time that so many institutions of higher education are working together to do this work and to figure it out because it's messy and it's slow and it's complicated, but we are confident that in the end, we're able to achieve our public mission in a way that really does 
enrich all of the goals that are a part of that. It's such an exciting time and important right now to focus on this. How do others get involved if they're interested in joining this? Uh, well, so for the Higher Education Anchor Mission Initiative, we will be taking in new members or accepting or reviewing or something with new members uh, at the start of the new year. Uh, but in the meantime, I have to say you must read the uh, remarks from Barbara Holland, Ted Howard, and Ed Andrew Seglison that has just been released in the Kumu Conference Journal from last year, because I think it really gives this great overall picture of the point of all of this. And I think uh, what they said was just really very compelling and moving. Also, absolutely encourage you to come to the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitans conference. It's our 24th annual conference. It's called Partnering for Equity. It's going to be October 22nd through 24th in Chicago, which has been doing such great anchor work and engaged work and so many exciting initiatives around student retention and other higher education related things. So absolutely encourage you to come to that. We're going to have a Metropolitan University's journal issue that comes out February 2019, highlighting uh, this kind of anchor work, so there'll be lots to read. And I think one of the best resources that I've seen is the Democracy website, sorry, the Democracy Collaborative website, because they have a lot of practical tips and advice uh, for people as they are thinking about getting started. And of course, you know, Emily and I and our respective organizations would be more than happy to connect you with other people who've done this work or have conversations with you as you're thinking about doing it. So uh, let us know how we can be helpful. All great resources. Valerie Holton, Senior Fellow of the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities, affectionately known as KUMU, and Emily Sondek, <laughs> Manager of Higher Education Engagement for the Democracy Collaborative. Thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Valerie and Emily. I thought it was really, really great. I enjoyed getting an opportunity to talk more about anchor work. I feel like that's something I don't get an opportunity in Indiana, at least, to talk much about, at least in the last year, to have these types of conversations. And it makes so much sense to me that institutions uh, are moving more toward that way and it's becoming uh, something that we are focusing more of our time and energy on. Uh, Andrew, what did you think about the interview? So I, I was interested in, in many things, but you know, you, um, w- one of the issues that I think came up implicitly in the conversation was, what is the connection between educating students for civic and social responsibility for full participation in democracy on the one hand, and this idea of an anchor mission of an institution contributing to the health and strength of communities economically and otherwise. And, you know, I mentioned earlier on, uh, or maybe actually, JR, you mentioned, but then I uh, followed up on that, that I had published this piece in uh, 
the Metropolitan University's journal. And really that relationship is what I talked about in this piece. So this is full of spoiler alerts for those of you who are about to rush off and, and read that talk published as an article. But the basic question I took up is how these two things are connected. And the argument that I make in there is that, uh, and I make this argument because I really believe it, that on the one hand, if you are serious about the anchor mission, then the most important thing you can do as a university is educate your students for full participation in democracy because we have a ton of research from a whole bunch of different domains that show that strong economies rely on participatory engaged citizenries. You can't have a strong successful economy over the long run if you don't have an engaged citizenry. So that's on the one hand, uh, you can't be serious about the anchor institution mission without democratic education. But the flip side of that is if you really want to educate your students for civic and social responsibility, you have to take your anchor responsibility seriously because we also have a ton of evidence that students are paying attention to whether their institutions are genuinely committed to social values and our efforts to educate students to be informed and engaged citizens will be undermined if they think their institutions are not actually thinking about the broader interests in the places where they're located. So it's not that we can choose one or the other. We have to pursue them in tandem if, if we're serious about either or hopefully both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I appreciate about the conversation is around this idea of the Carnegie Community Engagement Classification and that process and how that helps move institutions forward around institutionalizing community engagement in and with their communities, but then also the higher education anchor institution framework. And I've had some institutions in my state say to me, uh, do I have to pick one or the other do they fit together? Do they not? And I always thought that seemed like a really strange question. And so I, I felt great about hearing their response when I asked that question. And Valerie indicated that uh, they fit together quite well. Of course, they are different processes, but they do connect well. And they shouldn't be something that is apart separately because they can feed off of each other and help institutions become um, better, right, citizens within their communities that are educating students who are going to become people who are already citizens, but even deeper citizens once they leave the institutions and choose to to live, work, and play in communities, but challenge institutions to create long-standing frameworks that support community engagement work. So, I really enjoyed hearing Valerie say that they're not mutually exclusive, that they can work together hand in hand quite well. Yeah. And, you know, I think that as I was listening to the um, interview, um, what I really thought about was even our civic action plan and how that aligns really well with this and helping the institution have tools to go deeper in thinking about the ways in which it is engaged. I think there's oftentimes where, you know, you may have a president who's very committed to this, but this really, in order for it to be a true uh, representation of the university, has to have buy-in across the university, both, you know, wide and, and deep and these tools help, I think, institutions really delve into that so that you get broad-based buy-in. And I would say not just for the students who are currently within institutions, but um, alumni, right? Thinking about the ways in which our universities are connected um, can also be a powerful tool 
for alumni who want to continue to be engaged with their institutions and proud of the work that their institutions um, are doing. Uh, and they themselves might represent um, school districts or nonprofit organizations or some sort of um, other community affiliation um, that then has a uh, deep relationship with their alma mater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think Marisol makes a great point about, you know, I'm thinking about Emily having made the point that incorporation into strategic action plans is an important step along the way to really undertaking the anchor responsibilities of an institution. But of course, you don't just start with the strategic plan, right? It's not like, you know, as we know, the strategic plan is kind of valuable terrain at any institution because it's how resource allocation decisions and other things are made. So you need to build to that. And one of the things we're seeing through the civic action planning work that we've been supporting is institutions preparing to influence the strategic plan by doing the groundwork of really identifying how are the, you know, what are our priorities? How can we collectively work together? What kinds of partnerships will be most important? And how can we best serve not only the interests of our students in terms of education for citizenship, but also communities more broadly. And when they do that that groundwork, then they have an opportunity to get into the strategic plan, Mm -hmm. uh, which is then, again, where you can really drive change. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think I was also excited to see the jump that they experienced or the increased interest that they experienced from six institutions to 32 and right what that says about the field and the commitment of presidents and um, and institutions to really think about what their role is. Um, you know, I think that in more conversations, um, you know, we can talk about uh, sort of what they raised in terms of um, you know, defining the local community and how and how that happens. But I think most institutions have the communities that they have relationships with, and the deeper that they can get in those those partnerships, um, you know, the more work that that they can do in addressing some of the critical issues that communities are are facing with them. Mm-hmm. I was delighted that we have a couple of institutions here in Indiana who are a part of the 31. And I think what's important to note as well is even if your institution is not part of the 31 in, in this uh, initiative, that doesn't mean that you can't begin to create uh, your action plan around anchor work or in the spirit of anchor work to begin to think about how do we take on some of these bigger issues in our community with our community and what role do we play in that and being an anchor. I know here in Indiana, just specifically, and we're not the only state facing this, but we have a huge opioid crisis right now um, where people are literally dying every day, thousands of people from opioid overdoses. And our institutions are now starting to say we have to get serious about our resources and what role we can play uh, in helping address this. And I think um, even though that is a tragedy, I think it's a really exciting time uh, for campuses to begin to refocus on how they're approaching their work in and with communities. One other just um, a slightly separate topic that I wanted to kind of highlight from the interview was a point Valerie made about 
sort of work satisfaction for people in a variety of different roles at an institution. I think her example was of a, a purchasing officer who expressed real excitement that they could see the way their role was connecting with larger values and commitments of the institution. But I think that's really true for lots of people that, you know, I think all of us want to think that our work is meaningful and that it's connected to things that are important. And part of what thinking globally about the institution does and thinking about all the ways that, you know, the institution has points of contact with communities opens up opportunities for people in almost every role on an institution, on a campus in an institution, to think about how their their particular role can have even greater significance. And I really do think that helps add meaning to people's lives as employees within an organization. And I just think there's positive value in that for human beings. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I would say like on that Um, but institutions also need to be aware that they, uh, even though you have multiple sort of avenues of entry, like making it also, um, workable for community partners, right? So you might have five different offices that work with the community, but is that, does that make sense? Right. And so I think the deep work of doing the strategic visioning around this and is what are, uh, meaningful and uh, reliable entry points for, for community partners that are not confusing and it doesn't seem like two ends of the university are, are uh, saying different things, so being on the same page. And I think that's where, you know, Carnegie, the uh, Campus Compact Civic Action Plans and the work that Kumu's doing around anchor institutions can really help institutions think about um, the entry points for, for community partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so for Pop Culture Corner, let's jump into our conversations around that. Andrew, I think you have something to share. I do. I saw a movie, which uh, that's already pretty exciting for me. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, this was the documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think the film is just called RBG. And uh, it's first of all, it's just really good. Everybody should see it. It's very entertaining. Um, it's also... You know, for me, at least, I felt like I knew a fair amount about her, and also I learned an awful lot. And I think it's it does actually a really good job of discussing complicated legal issues in interesting ways. So that's also just an interesting achievement about it. But one of the other things is it uh, it documents the, I think, well uh, or frequently discussed friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. And... You know, I think it's um, it's one of those things where seeing the footage of the two of them interacting and uh, hearing her and friends of hers and others in her world talk about the relationship is really kind of striking. Just because it makes it real, this thing that seemed like maybe it was sort of a gimmick or something, but it's clearly not. Like, it's, it's clearly a real connection and relationship across obviously deep political chasms. And it never interfered with their capacity to uh, clash in significant and profound ways that they articulated in 
their legal writing, but also in ways that maintained a degree of civility and respect so that they could continue the conversation and uh, occasionally find themselves on the same side of questions, not that often, especially as time went on. But so that was just an interesting aspect of the movie. It's also interesting just to see how a person approaches a life that begins from significant disadvantage based on persistent historic discrimination and kind of carves out a pathway to tremendous influence, but also in a way that brings along others. And uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a really good movie and I encourage people to see it. It sounds really interesting. Uh, it could be an interesting common watch for the Newman Civic Fellows, potentially. Oh, yeah, I think people would really like it. And I think the, they spend a fair amount of time on the uh, the emergence of the notorious RBG kind of meme. Uh, and I so I think so many people are familiar with that of all ages. You know, she's become this kind of cultural superhero. So, uh, yeah, one it's, of yeah. My, one of my friends did, was the one who did the cross-stitch for... Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. She should like totally sign some and auction them off or something. I will oh, there's a, I think there's an industry right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no. yeah she's been yeah. great. Actually, we should have her uh, on here. I think uh, I think she'd be great for one of our podcasts. Oh, that would right. be perfect. Mm-hmm. Notorious RBG cross stitcher. Yeah. <laughs> well, mine. I want to talk about Pride Month. So we're deep into June at the moment you are listening to this. And June is LGBTQ Pride Month. And while that's an opportunity to celebrate our community and our history, uh, where we've come and, and, and where we're going, we'd be remiss if we didn't look back on that deep history and what really created Pride Month that sometimes I think gets brought up in a nostalgic way, but isn't looked at in a deep way. And so I want to play a little new something that goes along with Pop Culture Corner that's called History Time with JR. That's going to be a new a new spot uh, that we're doing. And so I just want to uh, bring people's attention to two trans women of color who started the Pride movement that has now turned into what we see as Pride Month and Pride Parades. And oftentimes we think of people like Harvey Milk or we think of more modern people like Ellen DeGeneres as really being a person who brings those in the LGBTQ community um, to light. But that actually... uh, is not totally true. Other people helped pave the way for them. And so Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were both trans women of color who were both gay and trans trans rights activists in a time when trans people and people of color were often excluded from gay gay rights and women's movements. Johnson and Rivera were both key leaders in the Stonewall riots in 1969. And at that time, the Stonewall Inn was one of the few places in New York City where LGBTQ people, particularly those with marginalized identities, could gather without fear of public shaming or harassment from the police. But on June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, violently harassing and arresting patrons. Both Johnson and Rivera were among the first to actively resist the police, which energized others to resist as well. This resistance became the catalyst for the gay liberation movement. And in the following year, the first pride parade ever in New York City was held to commemorate 
the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. That has continued every year since 1969 and has now grown to multiple cities across the country. And as all of our listeners know, the last 10 years has been huge for the LGBTQ community as far as our rights. We have also been set back in many ways uh, recently as well. But we can't forget that the two people who got us to where we are today were two trans women of color. So I just want to pay respect to that as we're beginning to exit out of Pride Month. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I knew knew some of that history, but not all of it. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad to learn more. Absolutely. And I would say for me, and I guess on the theme of uh, pride and uh, resistance is um, this is also the month that June that uh, Puerto Rican communities across the United States uh, celebrate our pride um, in our culture and and heritage. And I think particularly this year um, with the impact of Hurricane Maria and um, the recent, um, you know, news of the high death toll being in the number of 4,645 and also just the fact that so many people are still without um, electricity on the island so many months after um, the hurricane, um, just taking this time to remember the community building um, that has had to happen uh, on the island, especially when um, those who have the responsibility of supporting in times of um, disaster and emergency were so um, absent in many ways. And so the ways that communities um, in Puerto Rico and in the diaspora came together during um, the recovery of the, the, from the hurricane, I think has to be commended and remembered and that we have to keep uh, Puerto Rico in our conversations and make sure that the rebuilding happens there um, for these folks who are um, American citizens. Mm -hmm. Here, here. Well, for all of our pop culture corner and uh, little history lessons that we're giving today as well, I think there are multiple resources folks can find. If they go to uh, Campus Compact, they may find resources to connect, but definitely if they Google any of the three things about connecting across difference, about connecting to the LGBTQ community in your hometown, or finding ways that you can continue to help Puerto Rico, you can do that easily by searching online for organizations that can connect you in those ways. So I think we're uh, wrapped up on this episode, unless there's anything else we have for the good of the order. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Marisol. Yeah, so this is our next to last episode of season two. We have one more episode that will come out next month featuring Eric Hartman and drumroll. Marisol will be back with us, but not as a guest host, but as a panelist on Global Service Learning. So that's a little teaser for you. I won't tell you (laughs) anymore. You'll have to tune in and listen next month when that becomes available for download. I want to remind everyone that we do need your ratings so that people can find our podcast outside of the marketing that we do. So on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, be sure to rate us, share our podcast with your friends and colleagues, encourage them to share it with a friend or colleague. And if you want to add to the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at hashtag compact nation pod. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.